Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm honored to be joined by my friend and business partner, Pete Carabas. In this episode, we discuss the attraction of entrepreneurship, our fears of failure, and the desire to express creativity. We later discuss the potential for extraterrestrial contact, the nature of time, and stigmatized industries like cannabis and psychedelics. We next dive into how Pete developed resilience and ex- his experience with twin telepathy. Finally, we end with the discussion on cryptocurrency and the future of the global economic system. Because we talk about a number of specific cryptocurrencies towards the end of the conversation and in the outro, I'm adding a disclaimer that nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice, but rather strictly for educational and informational purposes. Please enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm very honored to be joined by my great friend and business partner, Pete Carabas. Hey, Jordan. How's it going? Very glad to be with you today. Awesome, Pete. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Really excited for the conversation. You know, you and I have gotten to know each other incredibly well over the last three years as we've founded a company together and have been through the good times and the hard times together. So really excited for this conversation. Why don't I let you take it away? Tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Everyone's background, you know, I am a born and raised Midwesterner. Jordan and I met working together out in Denver, 2015 or so. We ended up starting a business, ski investment partners together, doing venture investing in the cannabis space, and it's been an incredibly rocky road. It's been incredibly exciting. A lot of ups, a lot of downs, quite a learning curve to say the least. And really, I'd say has has opened my mind to a lot of different things, whether it's like cannabis, whether it's psychedelics, things with stigmas, people who think differently than the masses. Jordan and I, I, I know we love shooting the shit about that kind of stuff, whether it's ETs, consciousness, spirituality, you name it. There's just a lot of things that I think even starting in the cannabis space, I, I've now just become a bit more open to. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I, I think we can just start chatting about anything and everything, which is what makes us fun. Awesome. And I think a lot of great topics that we'll try to touch on that you just mentioned in that kickoff. would love to start with what is it that attracted you to entrepreneurship? In terms of entrepreneurship, There was a point in my life, really when I got to Partners Group, right? When I felt like I was going, always trying to get to the next rung in my career. At first, yes, I I made more money. Yes, I was doing more of what I thought I should be doing, what I thought I liked. And then I got to a point where we had done several deals. I was at a great firm and I was there for almost four years. And it was just kind of lingering in my head, like this feeling, right? That there's still something missing like what's next, that kind of feeling. And it honestly took you that one day in Union Station where I always wanted to do entrepreneurial things, right? I I tried to start a real estate app. I tried to start a a small business with my brother, but nothing where I ever had like the real knowledge. I was almost too young at the time. And then so when I collided at a certain point in my career with this whole idea of, okay, I, I keep 
ending up bored with what I'm doing and I want to create something. And then meeting yourself and Tibby, and then all of a sudden it made a lot of sense. Okay, wait a minute. Cannabis, this is interesting. And at that point, when we all started talking and getting real about starting Key, what was really the biggest thing for me is, okay, if I'm not going to do this now, what am I really waiting for? I mean, I can go start my own business. I have a, a market that has this huge growth projections ahead of it. Just all these different reasons. It was like, here's a hundred reasons why you should do this. And I'd almost say when I think about entrepreneurship and cannabis, at least, and key, I couldn't really find a concrete reason why I shouldn't do it, except for really just being scared of failing. But entrepreneurship, I'd say it's incredibly rewarding. It obviously comes with a ton of responsibility. You have to be the right type of person for it. There's definitely days you wake up and you know you almost wish you could just go not deal with all the stuff you deal with on a daily basis and go collect your paycheck. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's fun. No day do I ever really look at the clock. Sometimes I'm overstressed. Sometimes I uh, am bored with the task I'm working on at the time, but it's part of something bigger. But I love it. I'm the biggest supporter of entrepreneurship. I love seeing people younger than me going down that path, I would highly advise it to anybody. I, I think you would do the same, Jordan. And honestly, you're one of, sincerely, one of the most entrepreneurial people I really know. I, I, I often explain you to people as like this doer, like I'll sit here and I'll think about all the different possibilities and ways we could do something. And I'll kind of get into this paralysis and you'll do nine of 10 things. And eight of them don't work and you follow the next two. And so I think that's why, you know, me, you and, and Tibby as well are very complimentary. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier that the main reason you could even think of to not go the entrepreneur route was fear of failure. And that was certainly the case for me that that was the biggest con, if you want to call it that, as I was making the decision to leave partners. And I'd like to dive in a little bit further to that. What aspect of failure specifically were you afraid of? Yeah, I think there's a few things. In the early days, I always knew if, let's say, we went out and tried to raise money and it fell apart, at the end of the day, you could always go back to what you were doing before and maybe you're six months behind. That's one element of fear it is just, do I want to go waste my time on something, have it fail, and then go back to what I was doing with your tail between your legs? Then I think there's another element of your friends, your family, your social network, how you look and to those different networks of people. And in other words, okay, if I go out and try to start a business and I fall on my face, what are these people going to think of me? And I think everybody thinks about that to some degree, at least. And then there's my favorite one, which is simply going broke is a scary thought, especially, you know, if you've, if you've been in a situation or a, a job where you, you have benefits and you're taken care of and you go to work every day and you worry about what's on your desk and that's about it. So I think those three things, I think how you, in the eyes of your social circle, financial failure is scary. But then when you look back on it and tell me your thoughts on this, but when I look back on it all, it all seems so tiny. Even if you had failed starting a business, right? It's all, what's the worst that really would have happened, right? Like you would have spent your small savings account when you were 26 
and you go back and work for someone or you just have time. The good thing, and back to the entrepreneurial discussion, is I'm a a big fan of of people who are entrepreneurial and want to go down that route. Not everybody does, but for people who do, start start early in your life and, and just strike out. You will strike out, whether it's multiple times in the same business, whether it's three or four businesses before the fifth one works. And that sounds so like overwhelming and cliche, but it's really not. Think of even our initial ideas when we started Key. We were just all over the place. We didn't really know exactly what we were doing. And sometimes it's, it's almost comical to think about later. But yeah, fear is, I'd say, probably the biggest obstacle of entrepreneurialism. Because that's that first leap. The hardest thing is to act. The rest is mere tenacity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and the hardest thing, too, is the hardest days, I'd say, are when things are going badly. I should say not days. The hardest months. You have a few months in a row where nothing seems to be moving. You feel like you're working so hard. You feel like you're getting nowhere. And you the cash is down, you- going down. <laughs> Yeah, not to mention the little Chase Bank ticker slowly (laughs) fading away, constantly reminding you of how close your demise is. Um, Yeah, so yeah, that that obviously makes things interesting, but that's also good. It's like someone lighting a fire uh, behind you. It's important to know, when I think about entrepreneurialism now, I was saying this to my girlfriend Lexi the other day, I think about like, okay, I think if you have 20 dots on a piece of paper, right? And each dot's an idea or an action. It, this also sounds cliche, but you're going to, you have to think about those ideas as eliminating those ideas, right? You don't mm. know which one's going to work, yeah. you know? So, so people think, ah, oh, this didn't work. Shit. I fail. It didn't, I failed again. I failed again. No, each time you knock one off, you know, one more thing not to do. And that's, you can go for two months and feel like you haven't done anything, but what you've really done is you've learned 300 things that you shouldn't do anymore. Yeah. That's how my, my frame of mind has shifted a bit in that respect. And it's certainly great to have the benefit of hindsight. And obviously, we're in a much more secure place financially now than we were before. So it's easy to look back and say, oh, I can't believe I was so stressed. And there were those nights when I was waking up in cold sweats, literally, Yet to your point, you know, at the end of the day, what is the worst that was ever really going to happen? And I think it just gets back to experience uh, is in your mind in the sense of like the world is as we make it. The world is as we perceive it in our daily thoughts. And that can be as positive or as negative as you want to make it, regardless of your circumstances. I'm not trying to minimize, obviously, the, the real suffering and the real hard times that people are going through. but my point is more i think it's it's important to remind ourselves of keeping a positive outlook and and knowing that our thoughts really do determine our daily experience i do believe that and even before you and i have started going down a lot of these different rabbit holes of different topics that we talk about these days and i'm sure we'll get into some of those here shortly i've always been a believer in my life in that respect of like you just really you can determine the outcome of things by pushing forward and being positive. You attract better things, you attract better outcomes, you have 
whether it's, it's people that gravitate towards you that are going to help you, whether it's you constantly putting yourself in the right situation. No, this isn't good. That's not good. Just keep trying and trying and trying. But I just call it almost like this permanent optimism, right? Like you and I are both optimists. We're in the business of optimism. If we didn't believe that things would be better than they are today, we wouldn't be making big investments. And that's not to say that we're blind optimists. We we like to think we're calculated. We use due diligence to reduce risk as much as you can in anything we do. And so we see a company, okay, this feels really good. We like this, that, and, and the other thing about the company and we put some numbers to it, and then we figure out everything we can to reduce as much risk as we can. So it's the least amount of our pure gut feeling as we can get it to, and then that's when you make an investment, when that feels good. After you know everything you can, you still have a good feeling, and that's when you move forward. So yeah, I like being in the business of optimism. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, the business of optimism. So you mentioned that we've been down a number of rabbit holes. So let's dive down one of those rabbit holes that we've been down lately. To start with, would love to get your thoughts on extraterrestrials. And that's been, you know, as you know, an important rabbit hole for me really started when you convinced me to watch Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. I think your exact words the night you're telling me about it were, this movie changed my life. Which was like, holy shit, that's pretty powerful statement from someone I really respect and trust as an orthogonal thinker. And just the way that you were explaining the premise of this movie, I was like, all right, I have to watch it. And uh, I, I mean, honestly, it, it changed my life too. So with that, yeah. what, uh, what do you think about aliens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the question, I guess. And it's funny <laughs> to my point earlier, I've watched this now two or th- probably three times and I just keep talking about it. And here you are doing your podcast to you being a doer and you're doing podcasts and going and reading all this stuff. And I know you bought like 300 books and now you're (laughs) teaching me the stuff. So it cracks me up, but yeah, no, it's that I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it, but I would also recommend this. If you watch that, you got to watch it twice and you don't want to watch it with two or three glasses of wine in your hand, at least one of the times. The second time, you really got to think about what's going on. And I've rewound that show in certain segments, especially the ones about the study, the segments about the studies, which are especially interesting to me because they bring things to science that when Greer starts talking, right? And Greer, for the benefit of the listeners, is the doctor that does the CE5 protocol in this documentary. And he's Which an incredibly is a protocol for proactively making peaceful communication with extraterrestrials. Exactly, exactly. And so, incredibly interesting guy. And you know, at first you see this guy, and you're like, "What is he talking about?" And he's just <laughs> got so much of this information. It's like one of those things you feel like you're back in whatever grade school trying to figure out algebra. It's like it kind of makes sense, but slow down. It's just a lot. And how do the aliens fit into this the <laughs> point in the, in the documentary when it's like, it goes from like zero to 60 in like a 10 or 15 minute segment. And you go from like aliens into consciousness into talking to aliens. And then it's like, whoa, this guy's actually out there trying to do that. And then that's the point where I got to rewind. And I'm like, okay, how do I do believe there's ETs out there? There's no question. 
I do believe the government has an incredible amount of information on this topic. And for a number of reasons, and I can only speculate at this point, they've, they've chosen to keep it from us. I think one of the funny parts to Jordan is when you think about your childhood, everything, right, you think about in terms of aliens is really bad. They've been, they've been that Hollywood is, has trade aliens as always trying to attack us. That's all we know aliens is that they're trying to attack us. They're trying to harvest our resources. That's a common one that they all love. Think about what's the Will Smith movie? Men in uh, Black. Men in Black. You think about what's the one with the Martians with the, they're in those crazy space, space helmets. Mars Attacks. Mars Attacks. Yeah. <laughs> you think about like the whole alien movies with Sigourney Weaver, but everyone's got their different rendition and aliens, but the, the common denominator in Hollywood is that they're here and they're here to harvest resources and destroy us, blah, blah, blah. And they have laser beams and et cetera. What's interesting when you watch Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind that Greer brings up is a lot of this, he says, is really kept secret by the government because not only have some of these alien remains and some of their crafts been found that could potentially have a lot of different you know, this is technology potentially hundreds of thousands of years older than than we are. We don't know. But so anyways, they, they, they've kept it quiet. And then the, the two studies that he goes into in that doc, I, I really think are interesting. And this is av- after the point when he's talked about ETs and he's really going into explaining consciousness. And one of those studies is is the random number random number generator study that shows essentially human consciousness distributed over the whole world at different points in time. And what they're trying to do in the study is measure this. You have a bunch of random number generators. They're around the world. And you look at a big event like a 9-11, and uh, you see a big spike in statistically what would not be possible with these random number generators. So in other words, you have one in Paris, right? That's going six, four, three, two, six, four. And they all over a period of time have a a normal distribution of numbers like you would expect. However, when there's a big event that in, in one sense invokes a lot of I'll just call it activation of human consciousness or the mind globally with all humans, something like a terror attack, you see a huge spike. So in other words, there's a bunch more sixes, there's there's a bunch more nines. It's just, it's not consistent. It's not normal. So what does that mean? I don't really know how validated, validated is it. It seems to be based on what you see in the stock, but If that's true, and the more scientific research we can do to back stuff up like that, it's it's incredible, right? The idea that all humans at once have this level of consciousness and essentially awareness, and even to the point where they can control things that they can't physically touch, like mind control. So that's incredibly interesting to me. I, I love that study. The other one that I think is a bit more easier to understand, and I could probably explain it a bit better too, is he has this one in this. So I'm talking about humans with the 9-11 example, right? 
And then they go on to talk about plants. And so what the study does is it really it connects a random number generator to a plant. And you have a lamp that is shining in different spots in a room. And you see over time, the lamp shines more on the plant than statistically would be possible. So rather than a lamp moving randomly in 10 different directions over time, let's say if in position four, the lamp was pointed at the plant. So when, when you do this over a long enough period of time, you see a lot more fours, right? Four, four, four. So the plant, in other words, is controlling the lamp and basically telling the lamp, in theory, through some type of con- consciousness control, to point at it. So like, point at me, I want the energy, et cetera. So that's the basic concept. That one to me is wild when they, they show and they show it with a great diagram. So you combine those two things and then I connect those in my head and say, okay, so if we're connected with all humans and then you have things like plants and animals, right? We're really kind of connected with everything. And so the random number generator in the uh, 9-11 example, right, where you see this increase, is that just humans or is that also plants that sense this bad thing happening? It's like a sense almost. And then for people who haven't seen this, I'd almost think about another easy way to explain it could be like, you've seen the movie Avatar, the Nambi, they have this interconnectedness that the movie goes on about with the plants and consciousness and they talk about death as like a, a change of energy and they kind of bless the things that they have to kill when they have to kill them, even if that thing's like a technical enemy. So that's kind of a good way to think about this whole thing. If you're not familiar. Yeah. And that for me also, like obviously the ET side of the documentary was interesting, but for me, it was the science and the physics that they got into. And it was my first introduction to the unified field of consciousness theory, which as I've learned more about it, that's become my, I'll say core thesis of the best model of the true nature of reality that we've yet come up with. And that's why this whole topic has been of so much interest to me, but on the consciousness point in particular, you know, a lot of those things that you're talking about might sound totally crazy to people that, Oh, how could these random number generators change things? How could plants control lamps? But I mean, at the end of the day, we know such little about consciousness. Like, I think it's just time that we recognize that there's something more going on than just some random neurological synapses that somehow spurred on subjective consciousness. And we start treating the science of consciousness as something worthy of more scientific experimentation and not subject to pure criticism. You even think about like the concept of a hive mind, right? Like we know that ants and bees have non-localized consciousness. So why is it such a crazy theory to, to extend that to other species potentially to consciousness as a whole, maybe there's higher levels of guy in consciousness or interstellar consciousness, who knows, but I think it's worth asking those questions and not enough people are doing it. Yeah, no, it's a good point. You are, which is good. And I, one thing you told me to, to my comment earlier about you going down the rabbit hole with ever since close encounters of the fifth kind, I'd say is 
you were telling me about stoned ape theory, which is pretty mm-hmm. mind blowing to me. It's basically the idea that if you look 200,000 years back, you see like the, the human brain just drastically, drastically like it doubled in like brain capacity. And so how the hell did that happen? And one explanation that's given is this whole stoned ape theory thing, which is basically that apes walked in and they were eating cybacillin mushrooms. They started eating these mushrooms and that really drastically think about that. And if you've ever taken a psychedelic, it would make sense. Think if you were an ape and all of a sudden you had this whole different view of the world, almost like instantly, it's like a supercharge of your brain. And then they keep eating these psychedelic mushrooms. And over time, in theory, they have, it's actually changed how the, their brain and grown them for the better and made them smarter, which is wild. And if you've taken psychedelics, this wouldn't seem that far-fetched. Some of the stuff you, you think about, which is why I, I am so interested in that space too. But real quick, just with stoned ape theory, when we think about conscious, when you talk about the hive mind, And when I think about stoned ape theory, if that happened, let's, let's just assume it's true. If that happened 200,000 years ago, and that's how apes really became humans and our brains got so big and we became the smartest species on the planet, then why today can we just clearly make the statement that we are not really apes, or in other words, that we're the smartest guys out there, right? We're the dominant species. We run the whole earth, blah, blah, blah. And so this idea that consciousness, ETs, all the stuff Greer says, meditation, the ability to control things really with your mind is super far-fetched. Well, if you were an ape, building in a piece of Ikea furniture would be pretty ridiculous, the idea that you could do that. And if you were an ape, Building an iPhone or even working an iPhone would be pretty difficult, although I think apes do a lot of that touchscreen stuff. So I think they're pretty good at it. But nonetheless, you get my point. Like, if we can progress from A to B that quickly, then it's not reasonable to assume that to go from B to C or D is that far fetched. But we just don't know what the hell it is. And that's why it makes it so interesting. And even no. thinking about like Moore's law and the idea of technological growth being on an exponential curve, like if apes couldn't imagine what iPhones are, right? I mean, if us, if humans 150 years ago couldn't imagine launching rockets to the moon, right? Imagine how quickly things can accelerate going forward, especially if the science of consciousness pans out to be what Greer claims it to be. Yeah. Yeah, we can really accelerate things at that point. No, and I agree with Moore's Law, too. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, look even in our, look at where we are today. Think about where we are 20 years ago. Think about our the, the baby boomer generation trying to figure out the internet. Think about uh, the modern day internet era for the millennials, which you'd call blockchain technology. And think back in the 50s of the idea of really anything today. (laughs) I mean, it's just, whether it's technology or not, just think about like the last hundred years of history. It's been crazy how quickly things have advanced and it only speeds up. And why would it speed up? Well, 
it's, it's like something everyone's familiar with. Not long ago, we wrote things on notepads. We didn't have email. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have cell towers. Now all that's true. What has that done? Well, that enables people to talk to each other all over the world simul, you know, at the same time, find different people, create different businesses. So you're creating more businesses. You have more people connecting. You have more brains working together to figure out problems. And then without the internet, if you've, if you've read or listened to anything on even Vitalik Buterin or some of these early crypto guys, these guys were all like, internet nerds, Reddit guys, and they basically kind of found each other and had these ideas and started putting these ideas before. And that doesn't even consider the fact that obviously you need the internet to make you know blockchain technology work. It doesn't just work out of thin air. So now go back to 1990, when I was 1991, when I was born, all this shit I just said does not even seem remotely possible. It seems more far-fetched than even the Greer stuff. At least we've known about aliens as Hollywood just portrayed them. So the exponential growth of tech is is here, uh, is is real, and it's something to be very aware of. And I love tech. I, it makes me excited, and I love it from an investment standpoint. I'm the guy that gets the new iPhone the day it comes out. I, I uh, always got to have the latest computer and the latest gadgets and you name it. I, I love that type of stuff. So it's, it's a crazy thought how quickly, like where will we be in 2050? I don't know, but I'm going to feel pretty dumb by then. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back to the stoned ape theory you mentioned earlier. And I think it's an interesting idea that seems to be getting more traction in mainstream science in, in recent years as, as a real viable theory of evolution. And to me, it calls into question our whole conception of evolution. In the past, to me, it seems like people view humans as the most evolved species because we're the most dominant, because we have the most control over the world infrastructure. But if Stone Ape is true, and even if it's not exactly as Terence McKenna theorized, what if evolution is actually really a function of consciousness evolving in a sense of you become more self-aware of yourself, of your species, of what's actually going on in the universe? And why I think that's important is, to me, we've kind of gotten locked into this geopolitical infrastructure structure right that's constantly mine over yours it's all about control it's all about zero-sum gain versus if true evolution is about evolving consciousness then i don't think it's out of the question that humankind collectively can recognize that our technology is too advanced war is not a viable option anymore we have to collectively get to an entire new geopolitical mindset than what we have today and is as impossible as that may seem to your point think how impossible it would have felt to get to this point if we were apes 200,000 years ago so i don't know what do you yeah. think about all of that <laughs> yeah it's 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 hard it's a lot to think about i mean it's you have a the world we live in today to your point it, it's it's all it, it's all it's a lot of bureaucracies. It's a lot of institutions, 
whether it's the, the school system, the education system, whether it's the different government bureaucracies. And I think bureaucracy is one big thing too, always to know is once they get big enough, they're always incentivized to keep themselves alive. They kind of become like this organism. So we're, we live in a world where put together these certain structures that I think in a lot of ways just limit limit how we think of things or are told to think about things from from a very early age. So I think trying to to get rid of that to some extent is a good thing. I think that when I th- in w- what was the original thing you brought up it's escaping my Stone ape theory and is evolution a factor of dominance versus consciousness. Yeah, yeah, dominance versus consciousness exactly. It's 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 very plausible to me, especially if you look back in time, and especially you know you look at some of those crazy different I don't know what you call them not monuments but like Stonehenge crop circles you get into all that type of stuff, and you look at ancient artifacts and pyramids and you see I think one thing that's incredibly interesting is you can look at all these different cultures that in theory were in different parts of the world and didn't have contact with one another. And they have these weird common denominators that they all share, a lot of which supports everything to do with Greer's whole operation and extraterrestrials, which is just this idea that not only are we evolving in consciousness, but that there are essentially things that are more evolved than us and we can't communicate with them because we're not evolved enough. And we sit here and think, well, where are they? How do we get to them? So we start building rockets and shit and we try to go to a planet. They got to be over there. Can't, you know, it's like, (laughs) and and in reality, then it's pretty humbling when you watch that documentary too, and you zoom back and you're like, you know what? This is, this isn't about, for all of time, anything you read about going to new planets and galaxies and Star Trek and that type of stuff, it seems so far-fetched. Like the laws of science as we know them just aren't even remotely close to being able to get us there. And if you do get there, you're going to be like 10,000 years old and it's not worth it. So when when you think about consciousness and communicating even with extraterrestrials, that seems to be kind of the answer to a lot of these open questions in science. It's almost like a lot of the science today, it's just, it's all focused on the wrong direction. Totally. And really, it's like they're looking at the right and the left and north, south, east, west, but they're not looking up or they're not looking inward or they're not thinking about it the right way. It's almost like we're missing the whole picture. And so it's kind of a humbling thought when you think about it, like, whoa, I really don't know much, even as complicated as a lot of this scientific stuff sounds and all the stuff I know in school and Albert Einstein and blah, blah, blah. The idea that, wait a minute, there is just a whole nother realm of this that we've missed and back to the stoned ape thing. What would an ape have thought of the world today? They wouldn't be able to imagine it. Like what could they imagine? Maybe 0.001% of what the hell would be going on. So the idea that we can understand maybe 0.01% of what's actually out there today, it's a humbling thought. And I, I don't put it, it's not as far-fetched as it used to be in my mind. I think a lot of it too is all the stuff, right? We're fortunate to live in a, in a, a time 
when we have so much access to information. And without that, we, we might not be even having this conversation, right? Like all these different you know, free theories and stuff floating around the internet and access to people, the crypto guys finding other guys like, hey, think about all this code businesses, online businesses doing worldwide business, just all this, everything that, that's been made possible by technological advancements. Would you consider yourself a spiritual person? Yeah, I definitely would. It's, it's interesting to think about like what exactly that, that means. I think it has a lot to do with consciousness and energy what are you today? What are you when you're no longer around here? You know, when you pass away, what does that all mean? And you, you hear, and there's all these different religions around the world. They all have the same common denominators. Once again, you go way back in time and come up to today. They all have gods. They all have certain principles. They all have uh, some type of legends and figures and stories behind them. But I, I think what they share is there's this, there's a constant flow of energy all the time. And your physical form is one thing. Once that's gone, you still exist, but in a different form, right? So what is going to heaven? What is going to hell? Then if you're going to heaven, I think it's almost like this you kind of live in a good feeling, you're kind of positive, good energy that influences and helps people in ways I can't explain, obviously, which I'm struggling with the words, but that's how I think about spirituality. It's almost like, and you hear that people say, oh, someone passed away. That's close to you. Oh, they're they're still with you. I believe that. And you're going to try to put your finger on it. It's, are they physically floating in like a little, with a little ghost bed sheet over their head behind you, giving you advice? Probably not. No. But they had an influence on you and a certain energy they gave you that always stays with you. And I I think it stays with you longer than most people would think. So like you even think about people who've had profound effects on the whole world. You think of like a Steve Jobs even, or a MLK, or you name it, a a great president or a, a leader those people pass away and people who don't even know them personally are deeply saddened. And so that's what I think almost makes like a legend. A legend's almost like this spirit of energy that keeps, it it never goes away. It's persistent through time. What do you think happens after you die? Oh gosh, it's a hard question. I, I think that you... In some respect, you'd never really go away. What I don't quite understand, and I don't even know if I have an opinion on, is can I think in all that after? Am I around? Am I, I don't know if I'm just floating around in the sky, having a good time and going to grab drinks on a Friday, probably not. But what do you, where are you? What are you doing? What are you capable of? I don't know. Part of me thinks you're in different forms, influencing the world in different ways. Are you still in physical form? Likely not. Obviously, if you were, you'd be walking around. But for example, I don't think 
I pass away and then I like wake up as a golden retriever, as pleasant as that would be. <laughs> um, but I, I do think you're around in some form of energy and maybe that manifests itself into something else. I just, I don't quite know. And you mentioned time. I'm curious to get your perspective on what even is time. I don't know, but it always feels like it's running out. All kidding aside, you ever seen the movie Interstellar? Yeah. They do a really good job of illustrating the whole space-time relationship in that movie in a way that a lot of people, it's palatable for a lot of people. It's not just this crazy concept that's mind-bending. You see the guy talking to his daughter, who's like the lead scientist at NASA, and he's he's talking to his daughter in that obscure way by hitting those books on that shelf. So, like, what is time? It's just one element of you know you have space and you have time, and the way they're related is just it's hard to think about when you don't have this level of conscious when basically I'll say you have the level of consciousness of an ape to be blunt. So mm-hmm. what is it exactly? I don't know. It's a lot more than a clock and it's a lot more than your 80, 90 years on earth. If you're fortunate enough to live that long, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's a confusing concept. Cause I think it is like a false constraint, right? Like it's a, it's an illusion in a way, right? It's Maya. Like it doesn't really exist. It does in the sense that this material three-dimensional reality that we live in does seem to follow certain laws of time. But at the same time, you've had experiences of time dilation, right? Where time flies by or where time moves super slowly. I'm sure on psychedelics, uh, I've certainly had experiences where that time dilation is incredibly dramatic so while maybe call it an hour here on earth time it feels experientially like way more time has passed that's, so yeah that's that's a great example I'm not you're giving me some ideas here like that's a great way to put it it's like if you've ever taken a psychedelic i always joke that the reason they call it a trip is because you, you take a psychedelic and three hours later, you feel like you traveled the world and came up with all these great thoughts and solved 3000 problems. Hence stone Dave theory in theory, that's what happened. It depends on how much in your mind you can accomplish or think or do in our minds. We think about it in hours or days, but I, I don't, I don't think in a three dimensional world, as you said, yeah, that might make sense. But what about in a fourth or a fifth dimension? What about when, when you're in a, a separate dimension where one hour is perhaps in earth time, let's call it a hundred years, how much does your brain mature in a hundred years? Why in another dimension does time move much quicker? I think time's just one element of a much broader calculus to different dimensions that we don't really know a lot about at all today yeah and then when you bring in the topic of other dimensions what if there's objects or call it planets or solar systems or whatever it is but in called the fifth dimension that 
are changing the gravitational pull of our universe. And because of that, it changes how we perceive time. Do you know what I'm saying? Like in the same yeah. way that people on a, sh- on a rocket ship that are gone for 30 days of their time will be gone for much longer of Earth time. Like could that astronomical events in a higher dimension be impacting our gravitational pull and and experience yeah. of time in our reality. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, I think you look to astrologers for that type of stuff too. You're born essentially on a certain day when planets and gravitational pull and energy is aligned in a certain way. And in theory that makes you predisposed to act certain ways to need certain things more so than other people's. In other words, everybody born on my birthday, August 2nd, might have certain slightly different characteristics that are probably hard to measure objectively, quantitatively, but nonetheless, they exist. So to your point, I I think that when you're born on earth, does that have some effect on what you're going to be like? Do you really fall into a bucket based on how the planets were aligned on the day you were born? And then to get even further into it, you go to these ancient civilizations and you see, Jordan, what's the, the thing you're going to in Ohio? Oh, uh, Serpent Mound. Serpent Mound. If anyone listening hasn't read a bit about it, it's pretty incredible. But nonetheless, I mean, you see this in movies too, but it's all true of people using alignment, certain things, Indiana Jones, right? Certain things can only be done when the sun and the stars and the planet are aligned in a certain way, that is in theory, the optimal time to do X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And what's the thing in, I don't know if it's in Peru or South America, but you know, that door. Oh, Uh, I do know what you're talking about. I think it's Peru. It's yeah. There's like maybe something like that. Yeah. And I guess that's in theory where extraterrestrials would, present themselves it's called like heaven's door or something to that effect and then all these other different monuments it isn't even the right word but all these different natural i'll just call them phenomenons serpent's mound the pyramids this door stonehenge they all have this element of something to do with astrology consciousness lining of planets and all these different things when you look at them all on paper and read into this stuff it just becomes more far-fetched that it's a coincidence than it's not this stuff just doesn't just randomly happen and if it did who the hell did it if we're the smartest if the homo sapien is the smartest most dominant most sophisticated organism out there who, who were these people that could build certain things that could communicate in ways we can't? And what's to say that they weren't smarter, more conscious, or more in touch with their consciousness or in control of it than we are? I think that's a valid question. We naturally assume, oh, at this period in time, X number of years ago, these people were very basic and can't do even close to the things we could today. They weren't as sophisticated. And then you look back and you look at even in Asia's Asian culture has a lot of 
things with consciousness and meditation and all these different things that really allow you like think of like buddhism the end goal of of buddhism being zen what really is that it's really a control of your consciousness at the at the end of the day these things that were accomplished when you read up about history history as it relates to consciousness are too crazy to be a coincidence stuff mm-hmm. just isn't a coincidence the stuff can't happen 10 times over and have no significance and we know everything and so whatever happened back then has no merit and yeah. just have a hard time believing that yeah me too and even if the concept of there being extraterrestrials involved in these ancient civilizations is too far-fetched for people or or is inaccurate even just the idea of human civilizations just because they didn't figure out that, oh, you can dig up coal and oil and natural gas and burn it to generate electricity, doesn't mean that they didn't realize some other incredible energy resource that we haven't even tapped into yet, right? Like to your point, gravity mm-hmm. is so powerful. Electromagnetism, right? Like all these things, harmonics that just because we don't maybe fully understand how to use them today, even solar power, right? Maybe these other ancient civilizations understood this kind of stuff way better than we ever did and had capabilities that we're just, we're not giving credit for. Yeah, we're superior. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we're here trying to dig up coal and light rockets. And we <laughs> once again, to the space time thing, we think like we got to go somewhere. Like we think we got to go to some planet or that there's a bunch of people like us just in an alien city on some planet. Once we get there, we're going to like diplomatically shake hands like it's the United Nations meeting. Okay. And they're going to somehow, we're going to be able to communicate with them somehow. But when you bring up gravity too, and think about some of these spacecrafts that Greer talks about, they use gravity. They're going faster than anything. We could ever imagine there's an insane amount of video evidence that's that's the crazy part about that doc the video evidence is jaw-dropping and you see these things going three times as fast as the fastest fighter jet on the planet and then turning 180 degrees literally on a on a pin so how is that possible well it's not using fossil fuels we know that much and i guess if we haven't figured out if there's one thing we do know, it's the limits of fossil fuels. <laughs> yeah. some extent. We really went down that path. Yeah, right. Crack that nut. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned psychedelics earlier. I would love to hear your journey with psychedelics. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan. I think, first off, you know, to put my business hat on a bit, we're in the cannabis industry. We're used to being in an industry that's very stigmatized. Psychedelics, I think, are even more stigmatized. And granted, they're more powerful. Cannabis is virtually harmless compared to the other stuff out there that's legal and alcohol and tobacco and you name it. But then you think about psychedelics and they do really have a profound and intense effect on your brain. There's no question about that. My personal experience, and just like cannabis, I believe that everyone has different levels of what they can tolerate, what they can't, what's good for some people isn't good for others. It's no one size fits all. But my personal experience has really never been bad. 
whenever I've taken like cybacillin, for example, I yeah, feel so, so, right. I always mess that up just so I say can cannabinoids. <laughs> yeah. So whenever I've taken psilocybin, I find this. If you drink too much one night, you don't feel great the next day. It's not rewarding. Cannabis, eh, you can say certain things about that. And some people use it to reduce anxiety, among other things. But I feel almost this feeling of like refreshment after I've taken any psilocybin afterwards. And on the, you know, on the way up, so to speak, it can be a bit intense when you're kind of transitioning. But afterwards, I feel almost like I, I went to a therapy session. It's like I went and was able to get in touch with all my thoughts. Not only that, I was able to visualize and think about things on a really deep level that me sitting at my desk on a work day, I couldn't do. You know, I know this because I'll shoot myself like a, a note. I have this button on my phone where I just pulls yeah. up an email. I write a note. You, you installed um, that for me too. Oh yeah, I, I did. Yeah, exactly. So you have these little thoughts like, wait a minute, it could be business. It could be a relationship. It could yeah. be anything, but you have this deep thought where it's like when you were sober, you were trying to figure out, let's say a problem or a concern or something that bothered you in your life. And you kind of keep getting at the same dead ends and you feel frustrated. It might bog you down. that like mind loop of this. Yeah. The stuff where you lay at your pillow at night and you stare at the ceiling and it keeps you up at night and it could be personal. It could be a professional life. It could be any different thing that's affecting you a certain way. And sometimes after psilocybin, after a, a trip, you feel, I feel at least, like I've solved some of those problems or I've come to peace with them in a way. And a lot of times I'll also mention, it's hard to just put your finger on. It's almost like my experience has been, there's so much going on. It's like back to stoned ape theory. It's like your brain's on overdrive. And for some people, that's an incredibly uncomfortable feeling. But for myself, I've personally had only good experiences with it. I think it's just enlightening and have refreshing. You, have you uh, experienced a full dissolution of the ego? Oh man, I I don't know if I have. I don't know if I have. I I also don't know exactly exactly how I would measure it, but I have felt like I'm so reflective or so pensive and deep in thought that I'm not thinking about my thoughts are almost separate from myself. Like, like an out-of-body like, experience almost? You could, Yeah. Like you could kind of look at yourself and that's what helps you when I talk about the dead ends and things that keep you up at night, kind of look at yourself and say, Hey, it's almost like you have this virtual therapist that is yourself. Not to say it's it's always bad stuff like that you yeah. need to go to therapy for and therapy is not bad, but it also has a stigma like, Oh, you go to therapy if you have a problem. But I think what therapists really do is they help people walk through thoughts, walk through things that are bothering them, things that are giving them stress, anxiety chronically. So when you take mushrooms and you can kind of 
work through that on your own and more intensively. Think of as you've gotten older, and this goes right into our discussion about time. Think of as you've gotten older, how differently your brain works, just Mm. how you think about things compared to when you were, let's say, 20 years old. Everyone can relate to that. So think if you, when you were 20 years old, could fast forward and gain a bunch of that thought. Like, let's say over a 10-year period, you gained X amount of experience and thought and your brain became smarter. So think if you could could fast forward for an increment of call it three, four, five hours. Mm -hmm. And then when you came back from it, you were like, you have this feeling like you got some advice or you were able to see something that you couldn't see before. And I'm not talking about seeing colors moving around on a wall. I'm talking about understanding yourself in a way that before just never occurred to you. So when you think about time and how we say, call it a trip because three hours go by and you feel like it's been the whole day of thought. I really think that's true. I think you have had a whole what would normally be a whole day of, or maybe even week of brain-wrenching thought. It's like just brain overdrive, and it's, it's really cool. Have you experienced any changes to creativity after taking psychedelics? Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. For example, like one time I, I had taken some psychedelics, and I was thinking about as boring as this sounds, a structure of an investment. And when I came back, then I was thinking about it a little bit more and I had wrote myself some notes and I just thought of a whole different way to do this. That just was so obvious to me after I thought about it and after the psychedelics, but I had been thinking about it for a period of six months. And this is how we do it. And this is why, and I'm missing that. That's what I mean. Like you just have this, you almost gain three months of experience in like a day period. That makes sense. So shifting gears a bit, I mean, I'd have to say one of the biggest strengths I've found of yours, if not the biggest, is absolutely your resilience. And having gone through the ups and downs of starting a business and entrepreneurship, learned firsthand just how important that really was and and truly uh, appreciate everything you've taught me about that. And so I'd love to just hear where you think you developed that skill. I appreciate that, Jordan, for sure. And I, I don't know. I guess I'm a resilient guy. My, it, it goes back to my childhood. My dad passed when I was real young. My mom was always a very type of person that not accomplishing her goals were not, not an option, wasn't an option for her. So much so she didn't even think about it. Like she just was going to do whatever she had to do. So I think a lot of it's from my mother, my early life, just being very, my bro, I'm a twin, as you know, my brother and I were very independent. We figured out a lot of things very much by ourselves. We figured out a lot of things through observation of other people. And we're always the type that tried to piece together all the information that was out there and figure out a solution. What that did combined with, you know, everything I just learned from my mom as a kid was made me very determined to do certain things. Like the idea that all this information is at your fingertips, you live in America in a country, you can do what you want. 
and everything requires hard work. And my mom was very hardworking and that was just always how she was. And I had one parent. So that was my example, my role model for everything. And so I think those three things that I mentioned, me and my brother, how we operated and worked as a team in our early days to figure out just life. My mom being a role model and always doing what had to be done to, to achieve what she wanted really for my brother and I and herself. Setting goals that feel a little bit out there and trying to solve the puzzle to achieve, accomplish that goal or going into situations where you might know 20% of what you need. It's just something I've always been gravitated to. I feel like I'm a puzzle solver in that respect. And you know, you can't you can't give up on a puzzle once you put once you get the edges around it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you gotta keep going. <laughs> I don't know. It's just from a young age. James is the same way. James is my brother. Yeah, it's just been a part of my life. Yeah. No, that's that's great. And I've gotten uh, to meet your mother a number of times and she's just the best. So I can certainly understand that just that drive to just no chance. I'm not going to get to my goals. No chance. I'm not getting there. Like, let's go. Yeah, no, that, that is her. She is not afraid to share her opinion. (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah. She's an inspiring woman. No question about it. Absolutely. What was that experience like losing your father at a young age? When I reflect on it now, right. It was, I didn't know. I don't know my life and learn it. You know, I was just about to turn eight years old. So I was very young, but I was old enough that I knew and had a great relationship with my dad. But I'd say it put you in a situation where I went from a household, right? Where there was a lot of guidance. I kind of had a traditional family life. And my dad did a lot of, my dad and mom are very complimentary. I always remember that. And then all of a sudden, it was just kind of cut in half. And my mom had to start doing everything. Obviously, there was a lot of, of sadness. It was incredibly sad. For me, it was just as sad to lose my dad as to watch my mom after I lost my dad and how much struggle it brought her. But ultimately, when I reflect on it now, and I just I don't even know what I'd be like. And once again, it sounds a bit cliche, but I just don't know what even what I'd be like if that didn't happen. I'd probably just be very very different. And I grew up quickly. So did James. James and I very quickly went from just being happy-go-lucky kids, in which we still are, but to having certain responsibilities, having to help my mom with, with certain things. And I'd say my dad passing away, a silver lining, or not as even a silver lining, just one of the good things that came out of it when you look back is we really were a three-person family then, and we just we really had to be supportive of one another, and we had to work together. So it certainly strengthened our bond as a family to this day. But do I wish my dad was around? Absolutely. But you don't you get to choose the cards you're dealt. It was sad, but things happen how they happen, and it's another reason going back to resilience and adjusting and entrepreneurialism and all day you have situations coming at you that you didn't expect. You're always pivoting. You pivot a hundred times a week. You've got to change directions. You always feel like you don't completely know what you're doing or where you're going. That's a big thing. Like 
you always feel like that's why you don't ever look at the clock when you're in a really like immersive entrepreneurial business and you're just, there's so many problems to deal with. There's so much, and problems are, problem has a negative connotation. It's a puzzle. There's just so many puzzles to figure out, so much to figure out what not to do, so much to figure out what the right thing to do is, so much internal reflection. And needless to say, everything that happened with my dad, it's made me the person that I am today. And it's changed my mom to who she is today. For every bad situation, there's always good things that come out of it. That's beautiful. And I love that that's the perspective you take of, you know, it's not even a silver lining. It's a good thing. It, it brought us as a family unit closer together, the three of us. And, and in that way, you honor the life of your father by being closer to your family and, and really enjoying and loving the hell out of life. And like you said, you and James, I know for an absolute fact are still those happy-go-lucky kids loving every minute of life, come what may. Yeah, I appreciate it. We are it was all good. It's, it's all good stuff. And he's somewhere around there floating around for our conversation earlier. I <laughs> uh, don't know what it looks like really, but something's there. I'll tell you that much. And so back to our discussion on consciousness earlier, you hear a lot of stories about twins who maybe know something's happening to their twin, even if they're on the same geographic location or kind of having conscious thoughts together, so whatever it may be. And I'm just curious if, if you and James have ever had any of those types of supernatural experiences or whatever you want to call it. People ask us about this all the time. Oh, can you guys telepathically communicate? And I'd say uh, at first, it was always a funny question. Now, as I get older, I'm like, well, what, what does that exactly mean? And I think about it this way. Like, Biologically, right? James, so James and I are not identical twins. Uh, I would argue that identical twins might have some even higher level of this, just because they're more they're gen- genetically and biologically identical. James and I, on the other hand, are, if you understand fraternal twins, the short of it is that we're two brothers born on the same day. We have different genes. We have the same the same genes as any other in terms of similarity as any other two brothers. So you have genetically similar people. You have also a set of life circumstances and events in your life that happen that are very similar just because you live in the same house, you have the same parents, blah, blah, blah. We, I mean, James and I did everything together. We were attached at the hip. We had the same, more so than most ones, I'd say. We had the same friends. We got in trouble the same times we were were up to no good as teenagers partners in crime we uh dealt with similar setbacks in our lives we know each other on a very intimate level so anyways all this is to say that that combined with being very genetically similar i think you do have some ability to communicate telepathically with your twin and now what does that actually mean You know, when you look at your brother or your sister, another sibling or someone, you know, real well, even your mom or your dad or siblings is easier because you're the same age, but you can look at someone across a room. Let's say like a big, let's say you're at a wedding at a wedding reception. You saw something controversial happen and you looked at someone across the, the room and your brother, and you could just make eye contact 
and say, okay, I know what James would say to me if he was sitting next to me. But then I would take it one step further and say, okay, that also brings in the element of like actually looking at somebody in the eyes, which I think a lot of people can read other people's eyes. I can even do that with you. I know you well enough now where I could make contact when we were doing something in the middle of a meeting, be like, I know what Jordan's thinking. But I, I think the bigger question then becomes, okay, what about if you can't make eye contact? So in other words, if James is in Asia and I'm in the US and something were to happen, would we feel the same way or could I understand, couldn't see him physically or, or be around or make eye contact? Would we be able to understand what the other one is thinking? It's an abstract concept, but if you took us and a lot, a lot of twins, I bet, and I bet twins would do better than brothers, brothers and sisters and brothers and sisters would be do, do better than close friends, et cetera. But if you did some type of study on this and said, write down what the other person is thinking right now based on some circumstance, I bet we would get, get it pretty right. This is how this person is feeling right now. This is what this person would say. This is what they're concerned about. So that's kind of my two cents on point telepathy. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it in some level has a lot to do with consciousness, but you take something like consciousness and you amplify it with the fact that you have two people who have almost identical life experiences. And if you're identical twins, you have identical genes. So whatever electromagnetic waves are going on, odds are they're going to be very similar for those two people. And identical twins are notorious for being good in certain scientific studies for that exact reason, because mm -hmm. they're carbon copies of one another, genetically speaking. So I bet there's studies out there. I don't know if they're legitimate or not, but that have tried to address that topic. I believe there's some validity to it. No question. Switching gears again, you mentioned cryptocurrency earlier, and I would just love to hear more about when did you first get interested in crypto and what got you excited about it? Yeah, it's incredibly exciting. First off, what got me interested, I used to be in the real estate space. Very exciting. I love doing real estate investing. You were in the traditional PE space. And then all of a sudden we went into like this alternate world of cannabis where <laughs> it was just the wild, wild west. Going and building key and working through understanding the cannabis industry and the regulations and the companies and the cast of characters running these companies and all the above, I think was just, it really made my gears turn. I really love the venture space. I really do. It's, it's once again, a, a constant puzzle that I'm trying to figure out. Anyways, Bitcoin, I've heard about here and there since the early days. I remember hearing about it in, in college. I was called 2012, 2013. And I remember being explained to me like, yeah, it's just like this electronic money. And, you know, you can send it people. And I remember just thinking like, what, what the hell's purpose does that serve when you have like Chase Quick Pay? And little did I know, you know, you're totally off the mark when you think about it like that. Anyways, enough years go 
buy. Little did I know at that time, I could have thrown my $200 paycheck and now been retired. But aside the point, <laughs> crypto, I, I love. And the biggest thing I love even when, when I think about crypto as it relates to cannabis is cannabis is it's easy to understand. It's, it's like alcohol. It's like another alcohol to oversimplify it. It's a substance people use recreationally. It has a lot of medicinal qualities that we're working through. But all things considered, like we can relatively easily assess the addressable market. We know generally how it's been looked at in the past by the government. We can form an opinion on where it's going. We can look at tobacco and see, okay, what happens in certain circumstances when studies come out and cannabis actually does this? How do you navigate that from an investment standpoint? And how do you keep your money safe as an investor? And where's the best place to invest? And who is going to be the next Coca-Cola cannabis? That's all cannabis. What I love about cannabis is super high growth. It's recession resilient. And it has this embedded demand. The black market has existed. The illicit market has existed. And because of that, we know at a, a very basic level, okay, it's roughly, and I'm talking, okay, is it 100 billion? Is it 80 billion? Or is it 200 billion? That's pretty good for an emerging market to have yeah. that. And it's constantly changing and you're reevaluating. What's interesting about crypto to me is it is like the Wild West on steroids. And it, it makes cannabis seem easy in some sense. And not that it is, it's really hard. I think there's a lot of people who think cannabis is easy money, but crypto conceptually in your head is very difficult to think about. And I think that I do first off believe that it's the future of the world. I think it's going to enable us to do things that you could equate to what the internet did for us in the late nineties and onward. In other words, at first, right? Oh, you can go in a search bar and search for anything on planet earth, an endless sea of information. It'll all pop up, be perfectly sorted. You can watch video. Okay. That makes sense. You could send a message over email. Okay. I kind of get that. That's like where we are. 1990, 98, 1997, you know, computers and, you know, the possibilities just felt endless. That's how crypto feels today. And to bring it back to what I was saying about the cannabis addressable market, the crypto market, it's like, okay, is it? 50 trillion? Is it a hundred trillion? You start talking about aliens and you, it's, it's, it's so big. So that's my way of saying, especially when you think about crypto investing, which I'm, I'm a big fan of, and you and I have talked about is anyone with an idea today has the benefit of the fact that most people have no real idea of how big any of this can actually be. So if you're going to create, like Ethereum's easy to under, I shouldn't say easy, it's relatively speaking in crypto, easy to understand. Ethereum allows you to do all these different smart contracts, contracts for anything, buying a piece of real estate, doing a simple task, signing a document. We think DocuSign's easy, right? Like think of, of validating something using Ethereum and doing so at super fast speeds globally with no central intermediary, hence the words decentralization. So I think it's important when people think about crypto that they understand what exactly is decentralization, what's the difference between that and blockchain technology, and then how is this all going to end up in the future? I, a lot of that's unknown. 
But the fact is, it's that it's a huge, a huge addressable market. So I think today, if you're an investor, you just have to know that and be very careful of a lot of this stuff, just like the dot-com companies, it trades and increases in price based on hype, no financial metrics. It has nothing you can really peg it to, right? If the, mar- if the market, if we make an assumption that the whole cryptocurrency market at maturity is going to be $50 trillion or $100 trillion, then if you can capture 0.05% market share of that, you're in a pretty good situation today. And so that's why you see all these ideas pop up and it's just complete madness. And you have all the meme coins and all that BS and that'll go away over time. But I do think they do show us something interesting. Some of these meme coins and the Reddit coins and Wall Street Batch, which is really this power of like the first time where people have had literally enough power to drive, like take the Shiba Inu token. It's like $30 billion market cap. Does it do anything? No, it's just a picture of a dog. Unbelievable that that many people support it. But that concept is just interesting to me, that yeah. that people know they can do that. But Bitcoin, a lot of people have heard it, but it's digital gold. I think Sailor explains it really well as digital property. It's a hedge against inflation. It's call it the purest blockchain, purest form of blockchain technology. And it's easy, easier and easier for people to understand what gives it its value. And that's really just its scarcity. Mm-hmm. We talk about gold being scarce. Yeah, gold is scarce, but you can still dig it up. It's still, there's more and more gold. Yeah. We're still finding more gold. And now the dollar is not even on the gold. talking about like mining it on uh, meteorites and stuff? Yeah, exactly. So you think like gold as a fixed supply, like not really. It, it's yeah. rare. It's rare, right? But it doesn't have a fixed supply. Bitcoin is like this digital perfection where it's this big code. This is my rudimentary understanding, but it's this big code where you can't, you're not going to be able to print more Bitcoins. You still even hear politicians who have no idea what they're talking about say this, like, oh, we can print more Bitcoins. No, that's just, that's not how it works. You're missing the point. (laughs) So Bitcoin in my mind really like validates the whole thing. Bitcoin is like almost the foundation of cryptocurrency. Yeah, you know, for sure. In Ethereum, the, the way I explain it to people who are kind of getting into crypto, and I'm not a crypto specialist, but the easy analogy is always to go back to the internet and say, okay, if Ethereum, if you could buy a share of just the internet in 1999, would you do that? Yeah, that's probably a pretty good risk adjusted yeah. return because <laughs> the internet's going to be big. And blah, blah, blah. But the internet itself wasn't worth anything inherently. It was the stuff being built on. But that's what the difference is, is this whole concept of like, you know, Ethereum tokens, uh, the Ether token that you need to pay to do certain contracts. So this idea of decentralization, Ethereum, Ethereum is like the backbone. Think of it as the internet and all these different other altcoins are call them websites or apps or whatever, businesses built on top of this. And that's not to go too far off the basics, but you have Ethereum and then you have all these different competing blockchains that say Ethereum's BS, you need faster, it it has too high of fees and it's never going to work. It's not scalable. You have Solana, you have Cardano. And it's funny, it's like Silicon Valley 2.0. When you really boil it all down and like listen to some of the stuff about Mm -hmm. Vitalik and stuff, it's like, like 20 guys, you know, like 
half of them were like Ethereum guys yeah. and they all kind of the founder Cardano used to be Ethereum CTO, right? Something like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so now it's like this madman blockchain race. But anyways, Ethereum, I'm a big Ethereum bull. I think right now, I think Matic is a great, I think Matic, which essentially makes Ethereum far more scalable in some of these other layer two solutions and zero knowledge rollups. Basically, the way to think about this is side blockchains that use far less energy and cost much less to do the same thing. And they kind of hook on to Ethereum. And so I think those are great investment opportunities into our thesis, even in key. That's the infrastructure. I don't want to play too much of the who is the one single coin today that's $200 million and it's going to be worth $2 trillion in 10 years. Nobody knows. And just like the dot-com era, today, as a crypto investor, if you're doing this, you have to know this is that these are not pegged to real-world financial metrics or traditional financial metrics. And this happened in the dot-com era. If you had a dot-com on your name, because the addressable market was so big and nobody knew what it was, you were just worth a lot of money because even if you could get 0.01% of it, it was a a game changer. It's the same thing going on in crypto. 95% of the coins today will die off. You'll see new ones emerge that haven't even been created. And all this stuff will start to shape up. But the technology is uber impressive. I, I really do believe in it. Investors today should be very careful. I mean, you know, we're venture investors. We're familiar with a lot of this stuff. It's a crazy world, right? And even some of the internet companies weren't quite like it is today. What are you really doing? If you trade crypto, you're like trading startups. It's like publicly traded startups. So like you're not a mature company on the NASDAQ with like audited financials. You're just a coin with a website and you just say, I can do this. So like, Mm -hmm. you got to be careful of that type of stuff. And that's why it's volatile because, you know, oh, look at two months ago, Facebook renamed itself Meta. Every single coin that has Meta associated with it went up like $3 billion or whatever. Are those coins worth $8 billion today? Are they providing that value? And what metric is it based off of? I would say no. And that's why they plummet when things aren't as bullish as they are now. So I I think it's interesting. I mean, when the internet started, did we know what it meant? Did we know what smartphones were going to come out? Did we know we were going to be able to sit here on a Zoom and FaceTime anyone anywhere in the world whenever we wanted? It's the same for crypto. We don't even know the possibilities. We just know it's really big. So as an investor... I like the the ones that have a real use case. I think crypto, it's two things today. It's adoption. Is someone using it for something? That's why I think a lot of the gaming coins and stuff is interesting. Like there's people playing these games and earning money or the layer two solutions or the DeFi stuff, right? Like there's people actually storing money that you hear this metric total value locked, which is you have X amount of money locked in the like a a pool of like a DeFi protocol. Okay, that's kind of feels a little bit more measurable. And so adoption and the use case. What problem is it solving? That's what I love about Matic. Matic is like everything wrong with Ethereum is like unbelievable, except for the fact that if you go try to mint an NFT for six bucks oh, on Ethereum, God. you got to pay 150 bucks to mint it. What's the point yeah. of that? So that's my crypto ramble for the podcast. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. 
Well, Pete, this has been a blast. Before I let you go, one last, I'll call it a softball question in the cryptocurrency realm. Do you think that the success of cryptocurrency inherently means the existing global economic infrastructure based around the US dollar will have to be replaced and effectively potentially come crumbling down? Or is there a world where both exist successfully into the future? It's a great question. It's a great question. I'll say this, Jordan. I think that in the age we live in, in order for these cryptos, especially Bitcoin and some of the other more well-known ones to to exist successfully, they're going to need to be regulated to some extent. And the degree to which they are regulated is going to be a big point of contention in the coming years. And all the crypto knots hate the idea of any regulation, any KYC, but there's a lot of reasons why we know regulation is, is necessary. I think what you have to be careful of is like these central bank digital currencies. You hear this all the time. China's already far ahead of the US on this, which is like, oh, we're going to create the digital dollar. And that's not Bitcoin. That's just the digital dollar. Just how when I send you a Chase Quick Pay. And so Bitcoin, I think, is a, a threat to the US dollar, every other currency out there. However, if I think if, if governments embrace it properly and regulate it properly, it actually solves an unbelievable amount of problems. And I love the phrase that I would say it is Bitcoin is freedom. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it all, all unfolds. And I think in the very near future, call it next three to six months, see the SEC. The problem the SEC has today is they don't even know what the hell they're regulating. They're thinking about like, what is this? Is it currency? It's, it's the same security. thing with the tech companies, right? Like they just, they're just not sophisticated enough to be able to keep up with all the innovations that are happening. Right. Exactly. So it's, I hope the innovation in the cryptocurrency market and ecosystem is not overly stifled by regulations. That's what I'll say. There's a lot of opportunity if I had a, a kid or would say, you got to go learn how to do this stuff in school. Not that they know how to teach that yet, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. It. it's the future. It's totally the future. And awesome. cannabis. And cannabis. Exactly. You got you to gotta keep smoking while you're coding that blockchain. Awesome, man. Um, well, hey, thanks so much again for doing this. I had a blast. Would love to... Uh, have another conversation with you on here at some point and uh and thanks again for some great times absolutely jordan thanks for having me on the uh entangled podcast i'm sure i'll be back and i will talk to you way too much over the next couple of weeks <laughs> yeah. all right we on about cannabis as we always do exactly <laughs> all right man take it easy all right see ya Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Pete mentioned Bitcoin as being the first use case for crypto and talked about it as digital gold. 
I wanted to dive into this concept further as it's a good way to help people who are new to the crypto space understand the merits of Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin as a replacement for gold is one of the best arguments I've seen for the bull case on Bitcoin in that it serves as a better monetary asset than gold in every metric, and thus its market cap deserves to be at least about $10 trillion, the current market cap of gold. And so then arriving at this market cap would place the implied value of Bitcoin at about 476000 per Bitcoin, or about 10x the current price, because to Pete's point about the total number of Bitcoins that will ever be produced or mined is cryptographically fixed at $21 million. So I highly recommend the white paper... Bitcoin for the Open-Minded Skeptic by Matt Huang of Paradigm Capital for anyone who's interested in learning more. And in that white paper, Matt lays out the metrics as to what makes something a attractive monetary asset, namely scarcity, portability, fungibility, divisibility, durability, and broad acceptance. Bitcoin is better than gold in terms of all of them but one today, broad acceptance. However, even within this metric of broad acceptance, he argues that gold is fast losing its advantage, and we've subsequently seen this happen firsthand as there's been more adoption into Bitcoin from institutions like Tesla and Skybridge Capital. He further highlights that Bitcoin has additional non-traditional monetary features such as being digital, being programmable, being decentralized and censorship resistant, and being universal, which make it even more attractive relative to gold. Of course, it's important to mention that there's a a number of risks that could stop Bitcoin from passing gold, including regulatory restrictions, the rise of another more attractive cryptocurrency replacing it, and of course, just the unknown unknowns. Now, many crypto bulls would go even further and argue that Bitcoin also makes a better monetary asset than the U.S. dollar. The arguments for and against Bitcoin versus the USD present a much more complicated, longer discussion. However, what is undeniable is that there are valid concerns about the USD remaining the reserve currency for the foreseeable future. Some of the big factors that the USD bears would highlight include where the US stands today in terms of the long-term debt cycle, the metrics of changing global power status relative to an emerging China, post-pandemic inflationary pressures, and how a transition off of fossil fuels could impact the value of the USD given the importance of the petrodollar. And here I recommend The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio for folks who are interested in learning about historical transitions in global world powers and how being the world's reserve currency factors strongly into that transition. And I certainly don't want to scare anyone with this discussion, but rather I wanted to provide my sense of gratitude that we're developing and discovering these blockchain technologies and decentralized finance. I'm glad that we're developing viable alternatives to the USD in the black swan event of its collapse especially as the most likely other fiat currency currently available would be the renminbi, which has its own set of systemic risks. So I hope that each of you is encouraged to take the time to understand how cryptocurrencies work, and I'll post uh, some of my favorite resources for learning the crypto space on our Instagram page. Because once we bring crypto into the modern lexicon and appreciate the opportunity of decentralized finance, then we can really start to innovate the foundations of capitalism itself